Hello, and welcome to the Five By. Adventure Abounds this episode as Lindsay sets out to get herself elected king in Inish. Mason finds and trades ancient antiquities in archaeology. I'm traveling the Spice Road, and Stephanie brings us back home to connect with our loved ones in... And then we held hands. But first we have to get the adventure started by faking it until we make it with Sarah, and a fake artist goes to New York. A Fake Artist Goes to New York is a bluffing game for 5 to 10 players in a tiny box, designed by Jun Sasaki and published in 2012 by Oint Games. In it, one player chooses a category and title for an artwork, like animal, frog, or vehicle, tractor. The rest of the players are artists and take turns drawing the picture together on one sheet of paper. Each player draws a single line. It can be as long or as short as they want, as long as it's one line. Then they pass the paper to the next player, continuing until everyone has drawn two lines each. But here's the thing. One of the artists is a fake who knows the category but not the title, and still has to draw lines like everybody else. After everyone has drawn their two lines, the artists take a moment to examine the picture. Then in unison, they all point at their guess for who the fake artist is. No discussion, just one, two, three, point. If the fake artist escaped detection, they win. If the real artist correctly identified the fake, the fake artist gets one last chance to save themselves and pull out a win by guessing the title of the artwork. The real artists win if, after being identified, the fake artist still doesn't know what the drawing was about. With each line, the real artists have to draw something clear enough that the other real artists recognize it and know they aren't the fake, but not so obvious that the actual fake artist figures it out. The fake artist mainly has to avoid drawing something blatantly wrong, but also try not to be so nondescript that everyone pegs them as the fake. This balance between clarity and misdirection creates the real fun of A Fake Artist Goes to New York, watching hilariously bizarre drawings emerge line by line. In the animal frog example I mentioned earlier, one of the artists drew an absurdly long tongue catching a fly. It was the perfect move. The rest of us knew exactly what he meant and knew he wasn't the fake, but the fake artist was completely thrown. He had no idea and ended up guessing thermometer bird. In another game, the category was Star Wars and the title was Ewoks. The first artist drew the Ewoks' big metal belt. The second artist knew the title, but didn't really remember what Ewoks looked like and didn't recognize the belt. She drew a giant eyeball above the belt that turned it into a hideous, gaping mouth. The Ewok ended up looking like a grotesque jack-o'-lantern. Confession time, that was me. What can I say? I hadn't seen that movie in decades and I didn't remember what clothes Ewoks wore. A mistake like that could have made me look like the fake artist, but lucky for me, the actual fake artist made an even bigger mistake. He gave himself away by drawing a straight line with hard, sharp corners that couldn't possibly belong to an Ewok. Social deduction games can be stressful. Being put on the spot, questioned about your loyalties and intentions, and having to bluff your way out of it with all eyes on you is a hallmark of social deduction. What's surprising about A Fake Artist Goes to New York is how not stressful it is. Drawing doesn't carry the same intensity as verbal improvisation. That panicked feeling that you're about to be found out, it just isn't there. The fake artist doesn't have to lie convincingly. They just have to draw a line on a piece of paper. And if the line is ridiculous, so what? Everyone's lines are ridiculous. Everyone will be laughing at the lines everyone draws. In most bluffing games, I dread being the traitor or spy or what have you. But in A Fake Artist Goes to New York, I have just as much fun whether I'm the fake artist or one of the real ones. The only role I don't love playing is the one who chooses the category and title. This is called the Question Master in the rulebook, 
which I find a bit confusing since there's no question being asked. I find this role less fun mainly because you don't get to participate in drawing the picture. Also, it can be difficult to come up with a title that's easy to draw and still gives the artist something to work with. I think the most blah game I've ever played was when the title was Rocket Ship. It seemed like it would be a good topic, but we ended up with a picture that looked exactly like a rocket ship. It lacked the hilarious weirdness that makes a fake artist goes to New York so engaging. Speaking of the rulebook, it is printed in such tiny type that even people with perfect vision may have trouble reading it. If I had a rules question, I'd probably try Board Game Geek first and only turn to the rulebook as a last resort. That said, A Fake Artist Goes to New York has so few rules that looking up a rules question is a rarity. And honestly, the kind of player who takes gaming so seriously that they would ask a ton of rules questions about A Fake Artist Goes to New York is probably not going to have a good time playing it. Some gamers are very serious about the hobby and would see a silly bit of fluff like this as a waste of time that could be better spent optimizing their trade route in the Mediterranean. But I have a high appreciation for silly bits of fluff. A Fake Artist Goes to New York is a wonderful way to kick off a game night and get people enjoying themselves before the more involved games begin. It's also a great way to include younger kids in game night if their bedtime prevents them from participating in longer games. You'll spend five to ten minutes laughing with your friends and afterwards you'll have ridiculous works of collaborative art which you can save and cherish forever if you are so inclined. And that's A Fake Artist Goes to New York. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not drawing terrible pictures of thermometer birds, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hello, it's Lindsay here, and this episode I'm talking about Ennis, an area control game designed by Christian Martinez, published by Matago with artwork by Dimitri Billet and Jim Fitzpatrick. It plays 2-4 to four and games around 60-90 to 90 minutes long. I've heard it pronounced a couple of different ways, but I'm going with Innis because that's what I've always said, so that's how I'm comfortable saying it. This is a large footprint game concerned with card drafting and area control, where you're fighting to lead your clan to victory by playing action cards in your hand, moving your miniature clansmen around the territories, using different location abilities, and playing epic tower cards. There are three victory conditions. Either become a chieftain over six other clans, have presence in six territories, or be present on any number of territories with six sanctuaries. At this point, I should probably mention that I've only played Innis with a two-player. There are a couple of slight variations on the rules, and generally I can imagine this game would feel very different with more players. But just to put it out there, I'm only basing this on a two-player experience. I enjoy card drafting games, and Innis has a clever take on that. The way that you draft basically gives you two opportunities to change your mind about your selection, but also two possibilities of getting lumbered with a card neither of you really want. There is also the opportunity to end up with a hand you mostly do want, so I think it's fair and balanced in that respect. So the action cards allow you to place citadels, which are useful for protecting your clans during battle, placing sanctuaries, initiating clashes, placing new territory, migrating, placing new clansmen, and so forth. Some cards have Triscuit abilities, which are actions you can only take at a certain time. Once you're chieftain over a territory, that's when you have more clans present than your opponent, you're allowed to take the corresponding territory card and use the abilities it provides. Because you only have six basic actions in a two-player game, not counting the epic towels, I'll come on to those in a minute, you need to choose your actions very wisely and carefully pre-plan any epic towel cards and Triscuit actions and territory abilities. So the epic tower cards, I really like them. There are more epic towers than there are action cards and as they're randomly drawn you don't know what you're going to end up with or what your opponent will be holding. They're particularly useful in clashes, say that your opponent announces they want to clash and you can't refuse and they have a few epic tower cards and you have none, 
then you're probably going to be screwed for lack of a better word. The more I've played the game, the more necessary I believe these cards are because they add elements of uncertainty to the course of the gameplay, a little more tactical decision making and just give the game a bit more meat. After games of Innis, I've mulled over if I think this game needs more action cards, if perhaps it's a little bit bare. Using the same action cards and a few less in a two-player game can feel a tad repetitive. I've come to the conclusion that it just wouldn't work with a huge deck though, and I think it's important that it's limited. Thematically, it makes more sense that you can only take a certain number of actions, but it's also about drafting the best cards for your strategy and playing them at the right moments, which wouldn't work if you had a ton of cards to choose from. Also, as you'll all be using the same cards at some point during the game, you have kind of an idea what your opponents could be planning, giving you the chance to foil their plans or work around them. I think Innis could do with an expansion for sure, even if it was just a few more cards to change it up or more territories to add on. My favourite territory is Gates of Tiernanog, which I know I've probably pronounced horribly. Whilst you're present in this territory, you flip the Flock of Crows token. If the direction changes, you must lose a clan from the territory and draw an Epic Tau card. So this to me is a little bit risky, which I like. You use the gates to accumulate epic tower cards, but you also could be losing clans every turn. And of course, that could be part of your grand plan. I'd love to see an expansion that draws further on the otherworldly aspect of Innis, perhaps with abilities to transport you around the board or calling upon specific gods or spirits to conjure into your clashes, that sort of thing. I think that'd be cool. Innis is also about focus. I say this a lot, probably because I'm always trying to tackle the big games when I'm on my last legs and I've got no mental capacity left. A couple of games I've been tired or not super focused and I've realised I missed an opportunity or handed the victory to my opponent. As mentioned, there's three victory conditions that can win you the game. It's a really good idea to have one in mind from the get-go, but prepare to be flexible. As with most strategy games, it's great to have a plan, but flexible with your approach, in my opinion. So does it work as a two-player? Well, it's pretty brutal. Have a solid friendship with the person you're playing with if you still want to be on speaking terms when the game ends. It's pretty heavy conflict with two players because when it comes to clashes, you're only fighting each other, obviously. And I love playing the Gesh card. He basically says, ah, you want to do such and such? I don't think so. And, you know, he probably wouldn't actually say that because he's like an ancient being and not Elisa Silverstone. But he is quite a mean one to play. A couple of last few points. Yes, the artwork is bloody beautiful and ludicrously and lovingly detailed. The card size is very awkward and I'm yet to find sleeves that fit. And the jagged edge territory tiles are horrible to shuffle. Even if you're not sold on owning Innis, I think it's definitely worth playing and trying. It's definitely the kind of game that you need to keep playing to get the feel of. And some people were underwhelmed, others were delighted with it. I'm still on the fence somewhat. I'm not underwhelmed, I'm not overwhelmed, but I enjoy it and I anticipate playing more. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel, Shiny Half Meeples, or pop my blog, www.shinyhalfmeeples.blog.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Meeples. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about archaeology. Most very serious, and a lot of casual, readers have favorite authors, and the same is true for hobby board and card gamers. Much like committed readers, a lot of us have a tribal brand loyalty that makes a new game announcement from our favorite designers a very major event. For me, one of those designers is Phil Walker-Harding. You may know Phil best from his incredibly successful drafting game, Sushi Go, or possibly from last year's Spiel des nominated Imhotep. One of my favorite of Phil's games is a lovely little box full of cards called Archaeology, the card game. Released in 2007 by his own Adventureland Games out of Sydney, Australia, and picked up in the US by Z-Man, Archaeology is a quick and clever set collection game with a shared market and a deck full of very nasty surprises. 
In some ways, archaeology is a bit like what Thieves of the Card Game should be. You're digging through a deck looking for artifacts, set collecting them, and then selling them to a museum. I think there are a few key factors that set Phil Walker Harding games, and archaeology in particular, apart from other set collectors. One of them is the math. Card frequency and set payouts based on that frequency are perfectly balanced beyond my ability to comprehend the work that went into set balancing. I don't know how Phil does it, but he manages to do it. That works especially well in archaeology, because you're not allowed to add to a set once it's left your hand. Unlike traditional rummy games, you can't lay off cards onto a set you've already created. There's no hand limit in archaeology, so you can, if you so choose, just keep picking up cards or trading for them in the market hoping to build these monster sets of artifacts to lay down. The danger, and the push-your-luck element in archaeology, comes from the stack of sandstorm cards shuffled into the deck at the beginning of the game. So on your turn, you must draw a card from the top of the deck. You're then free to exchange cards in the marketplace or lay down sets from your hand, but not every card you draw will be a new artifact you've uncovered. When you draw a sandstorm card, every player must discard half of their hand into the market. If there are only two cards in your hand, no big deal. But if you're holding a dozen high-value artifacts that you were planning to lay down this turn, you have basically just screwed yourself. I think in a very clever way here, uh, Walker Harding manages to capture some of the very raucous, anger-inducing, table-pounding of popular take-that-style card games without the direct meanness of targeting individual players. There is a touch of take-that with the thief cards. Uh, when drawn, they allow you to take a random card from a player's hand of your choice. But more often than not, it's not incredibly helpful to the thief, and we actually play an interesting meta-mind game when shuffling our hand before the thief chooses. It forces one to second-guess where their opponent has placed the high-value cards in their hand, or if they even have any at all. Did they just shuffle this up to make me think there's something good, or is there actually something good? Did they move that card all the way to the left of their hand because there's the, where the best ones are, or because that's where they want me to think the best ones are? It adds an interesting level of mid-game emergence and strategy that I really enjoy. Archaeology is rules light, and even relatively strategy light, but every turn presents difficult decisions about what to keep or what to trade for based on your assumption about how many cards are left in an individual suit. There's little AP and no perfect information here, as part of the initial setup is removing three small stacks of cards and entombing them for future discovery. You do this by collecting and playing map cards. If you can hold out long enough, or get very lucky, you can drop three map cards on the tomb and pick up the stack of seven artifact cards. Because these are randomly shuffled at the beginning of the game, I've drawn tomb hands filled with the riches of the ancient world, and sometimes a bunch of broken cups and worthless junk. There's a fair amount of luck in archaeology, but there are also multiple paths to victory. I've won playing it safe, keeping my hand low, and selling off small sets every round, and I've won going big, taking risks on really valuable items and keeping my hand full in hopes of not getting caught in a sandstorm. I've taught archaeology to gateway gamers and to very serious heavy war gamers, and it's always a hit. In 2016, Z-Man put out Archaeology The New Expeditions, an updated version with new art that includes some objectives and events, but I haven't played it. The new art is nice, and I know Phil significantly prefers it to his original art, but I find something very charming about the original version. You can pick up a used copy of Archaeology any day of the week for $10 to $20, but hilariously, and not unsurprisingly, the 2016 Z-Man reissue is either out of stock or out of print, and people want very unreasonable prices for it. While the 5 Buy is not a platform that I typically use for my board game rants, Z-Man's inability to keep titles in print and or in stock is both bizarre and deeply foolish on the part of parent company Asmodee. I can't possibly see any kind of business strategy that leverages not ever printing enough copies and then delaying reprints of games that regularly sell for double their original retail price. This has been a long-term problem with Z-Man, both under its original ownership, under Philosophia, and now under Asmodee. It's not like Asmodee doesn't have the capital or infrastructure to print card games, right? I don't get it. Sorry, I've digressed here. I typically don't cover games that aren't readily available at retail, but old copies of Archaeology the Card Game are so ubiquitous that you won't have any trouble sourcing one for yourself. 
But if you can't find it, please get in touch with me and I'd be happy to point you in the right direction. So who should buy archaeology? People who like set collecting. People who like ancient Egypt. People who like a thriving, active marketplace at the center of a light economic game. People who don't mind a touch of randomness and bad luck. And people who don't get bent out of shape when the treasure of a lifetime gets stolen right out of their hand. I give archaeology 10 out of 10 golden masks of Tutankhamun buried in the shifting sands of the Sahara. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Hi there, it's Mike. Century Spice Road by Emerson Matsuuchi and published by Plan B Games is a themeless, abstract, card-drafting, cube-trading, deck-building dynamo. And, coincidentally, the game I'm talking about today. I've been following Century Spice Road since it was announced back in 2016 as Caravan, and after all the twists and turns, I think this game has turned out for the better, with stunning art by Fernanda Suarez and streamlined play by Emerson. I call this game themeless because that's what the designer has called it, but in Century Spice Road you are collecting and trading spices to fulfill contracts on the contract biro. Okay, fine. The game calls them points cards, but to me they are contracts in a foreign land. Each player starts with their caravan, which can hold up to 10 spices, a couple starting spices, usually turmeric, but also possibly some saffron depending on player count, and two cards. The first card allows you to collect two turmeric. The second card allows you to upgrade any one spice by two steps, or two spices by one step. The rest of the setup is simply placing out the bowls full of turmeric, saffron, cardamom, and cinnamon. Then setting up two biros, one for the trader cards that let you obtain and trade for spices. These are the cards that you'll be playing to gain goods for your caravan and the top row of contracts you can fulfill with those spices in your caravan to score the specified points. You also put out some gold and silver coins above the two leftmost contracts. These coins are worth 1 and 3 points each at the end of the game, and are there to encourage competitions for contracts. The game ends when a single player has claimed 5 or 6 contracts. For your turns, each player may choose to play a card from their hand, acquire a new merchant card into their hand, claim a contract by trading in the necessary goods from their caravan, or rest to take all their played cards back into their hand. It's really the rest and the acquire actions that set this apart for most deck builders. In Century Spice Road, when you acquire a merchant card, you may immediately put it into your hand. This means if the perfect card that you need right now is sitting there, take it and use it next turn. Add the ability to rest whenever you wish to regain all your cards, and this becomes a very tactical game. I have on several occasions taken a merchant card from the biro solely to gain the spices other players have put on it to skip it when acquiring other merchants further down the biro. That you don't have to play all your cards before resting opens up a lot of options and makes for a much more forgiving game. But don't be fooled, I don't feel this is exactly a gateway game either, because while the turns are very simple and trading spices for other spices is very satisfying, you really need to keep your eye on a goal and what others are doing. I found myself just sitting there churning spices for a couple of turns and realizing that I was not getting anywhere close to the current goals. I had lost focus after someone else had taken the contract I was trying to fulfill, and had incorrectly assumed that just churning the cards I had would get me somewhere useful. It didn't. Usually someone taking your contract isn't too much of a hindrance though, but depending upon what cards are out there, it can take a couple of turns to shift what you have around to fulfill a new contract. There can also be a bit of luck on which merchant cards are available on your turn. I've had a few where say all the cards in reach on my turn are for turning cardamom into other goods and I didn't have a quick way to make a couple cardamom. So I ended up playing and resting the same 3 or 4 cards for most of the game and really felt out of it. To my surprise, even though each game I felt someone was clearly getting the better cards and making better use of them, come end of game scoring time the scores have always been super close. Aside from the one time Lisa creamed us all. So why do I keep emphasizing the theme in a game the designer said was themeless? 
Well, that's probably because Fernanda Suarez's art really speaks to me. It just oozes real people and places, and probably because I'm a history buff, it makes me feel like I'm part of that world. It's just so nice to have a Rochester-style draft game that isn't about attacking your opponents. The equally amazing, but totally optional playmat with art by Chris Williams does the same. Seeing cardamom pods under the green cubes just really cements that connection for me. So, in the end I'm a little more mixed on Century Spice Road than I thought I'd be. But I think that's more about me, my expectations, and my default reaction to this style of deck builder. I really like the tweaks Emerson has made to deck building. I think it's super sound mechanically. And I do really enjoy playing and trading for cards. But I get a little frustrated at the luck of available cards at times. I also feel the game itself goes on a touch too long, especially at 4 player. I haven't played it with 5, but at the moment I feel 3 player is about perfect. Despite some minor niggles, this is a solid start from Everson and Plan B games, and I'm really excited to see where it goes from here as we continue through the Century Trilogy. If you'd like to give me your thoughts on Century Spice Road, or also show your appreciation for them getting it right, Cinnamon is the king of spices, you can reach me on Twitter at MikeRizzly. I don't know how much stock I put in my astrological sign, but if what I've read is to be believed, my Libra birth sign is all about balance. Never wanting things to get pushed too far in one direction or another. And maybe that speaks to some faded reason why I love the game and then we held hands. Released in 2015 from Luda Creations, and then we held hands is a game all about maintaining balance emotional balance as you and your partner navigate the highs and lows of a relationship. In this two-player game designed by David Chirkop and Yannick Massa, players are working to meet emotional milestones by using cards featuring artwork by Dixit artist Marie Carduat. The goal of the game is to complete a series of objectives by ending your turn on a specific colored spot on the board. Players use cards known as emotion cards, whose borders feature the colors of the colored spots on the board to move themselves around and across three rings of spaces. This is an abstract game in the purest sense of the word. Players are dealt their opening hand of emotion cards at the start of each game. The cards are divided vertically with a different color on either side. You play the cards in a row in front of the player with each card covering half of the next card in that row. These are the card colors available for you and your partner's disposal. At the end of each player's turn, depending on where the player ends up, that card display could fan out to the other direction, giving a totally different set of emotions to wade through. Each card used represents a different emotion that affects the player's overall emotional balance. Red and black emotions are negative, while green and blue emotions are positive. Not only are players using the cards to maintain a shared emotional equilibrium, but also a personal one. A player can never wallow in their sadness and anger with a series of red and black cards over and over and over, nor can a player see the world with rose-colored glasses without acknowledging the darker moments of life and expect to get anywhere. The game just won't allow it. Thankfully, if players can carefully, to paraphrase the theme song from Facts of Life, take the good and take the bad, and end their turn in a balanced emotional state, they can refill their card display. If at any time there are no cards for a player to play without moving them too far negative or positive, 
or with no available spaces represented on the board, then the players lose the game and, thematically, their healthy relationship. But if players can make it to the innermost spot at that same time and each achieving that emotional neutrality previously mentioned, they have won. Together. The wrinkle in the game? Players can't talk about the game. No revealing what your next move is going to be or what cards you want to use. Like my own relationship with my husband, sometimes you just have to look inwards in hopes of being the support your partner needs when they need it. There's a certain beauty in the simplicity of this game, a softness both in victory and defeat, and herein lies why I love this game. For a game that is so simple, so minimalist, no amazing components to speak of, I honestly feel something personal and true when I've played it. I don't know if it has to do with the fact that I've only played this game with my spouse, because honestly, something about it would feel really weird playing it with someone that I don't feel a deep connection to. But this experience is undeniable. And then we held hands, retails for about $20, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a two-player game with more heart. For 5 Buy Games, I'm Stephanie Stonerob, and until next time, stay playful. Thanks for listening to the 5 Buy. If you'd like to follow us, please do head over to Twitter at 5 Buy Games, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games, or join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to the 5 Buy on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or follow all of our links on the 5 Buy at fiveside.com.